ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, this is Martin Scorsese, and uh, I'll be joined by uh, Thomas Schoonmaker, who's the editor of this film, Raging Bull. And we'll be telling you a little about the, the making of the film. This title sequence was inspired by a series of still photographs in a book called Fighters, I think. Uh, they're wonderful black and white photographs of uh, fighters at different parts of uh, uh, their process in the back rooms. Um, uh, in the ring, one uh, one or two particularly interesting ones of uh, a fighter standing alone in the ring. And I believe we shot this the last day of shooting all the fight footage in Los Angeles. And I think it was at 120 frames a second. That is De Niro in, in, in the leopard robe, and not a stand-in. A little background of the movie was that uh, back when I was in 74, when I was doing uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, uh, Bob... De Niro gave me the book of Raging Bull, written by Peter Savage and Joseph Carter. Pete Savage was a, um, a very close friend of uh, Jake's, and he appears in this film a couple of times as an actor. Uh, the book uh, was sort of a biography of Jake, although it was more, very much in a very traditional vein, a very conventional uh, approach. And what Bob and I were, were attracted to was the... Um, series of scenes that we liked, and the character of Jake. We got our draft, a first draft, from Mardik Martin, who was an old friend of mine from New York University, who wrote Mean Streets with me. And by 77, we went to Paul Schrader for a second draft, and Paul wrote this draft, basically, of, uh, of the film in six weeks. Afterwards, at the end of 78, Bob and I rewrote the script, incorporating a lot of those scenes that we liked from the original piece and retaining uh, Schrader's structure. My name is Thelma Schoonmaker, and I am Martin Scorsese's film editor. I remember those cheers. They still ring in my ears. Jake LaMotta himself actually did used to perform Shakespeare and various classics in his nightclub acts. So this is really true, that he used to go to places and recite incredible things as part of a job that he made for himself after he left fighting. When we started shooting the film in the fall of 79, in the original script, the scenes of Jake, heavier, were laid out throughout the entire picture, and it was something we kept cutting back to. Later on, only after doing the first uh, rough cut of the picture, which was about two hours and 23 minutes, I realized that uh, every time I was looking at the guy who was thin, every now and then this guy who was fat would come on, 
And I said, gee, I wonder, I wonder what's happening to the guy who's thin, you know, who's in better shape. It was almost like two different characters. And that's when I got the idea to straighten the structure out completely and do it without the flashback technique. Basically just using as a framing device, Jake about to go on stage in 1964. That's entertainment. Jake LaMotta and Jimmy Reeves in the Cleveland <laughs> Arena. LaMotta is undefeated, but he's well behind on points. We shot all the, um, the fight scenes in Los Angeles. Uh, the Jimmy Reeves fight uh, was shot in an auditorium, which was actually used for roller derby. Why the fuck do we have to come to Cleveland for you to get beat my bone yard? Come on, Jack, do the fucking right thing here. You got you by the balls, Jake. You're out pointed. The rest of the fight scenes were shot in a soundstage at the old um, David Selznick Studios. All of the fighters in the film are actual fighters, and all the referees are actual referees. The handlers, particularly, some of whom are Jake's old handlers, are a wonderful touch. Of course, De Niro worked so hard, so long to look and act like a fighter. These fight sequences were incredibly arduous for not only the film crew, but particularly for De Niro, because he had to do shots over and over and over and over again, because the camera moves were sometimes so terribly difficult, and he was very patient about it, say nothing of the hours he spent in makeup before he even began shooting. All the cuts that you're, that you're watching in these fight scenes, all of this has been worked out beforehand on paper, there'll be some supplementary material that you'll, you'll actually be able to see some of the storyboards or at least the, the, the overhead plans that uh, I had worked out on paper. And uh, um, that gave us a, um, a master plan to follow in terms of the cutting. Of course, the shots were pretty extravagant at times and uh, it wound up that uh, we had five weeks scheduled for the fight scenes and we wound up shooting them in 10 weeks. And there's only about nine or 10 minutes of actual fight footage in the entire picture. And so we went quite, we went pretty much over schedule on this. What Bob did was worked out the fights with Jake LaMotta and Jimmy Nickerson was our uh, stunt person. And basically I had one shot that I looked at on video, black and white video. And it was basically your overhead shot looking down at the two fighters in the ring. And they had their choreography timed out perfectly. And what I did was I studied it and worked it out like um, several punches became what pretty much what I would do with two or three bars of music in, in the film New York, New York. There, was, there wasn't a situation where you had seven cameras and you're shooting the ring and then you do it in the editing. There's no such thing. Uh, all these were worked out way in advance. That's Jake Fight! Come on, that's Jake Fight! Jake won that Bowie, don't get out of the fucking ring. Stay here. You won. Let him go first. Stay here. Tell him. Lamotta, Ford Reeves, seven times in the fight. But Lamotta still I always thought it was a fascinating, um, fascinating profession to be a boxer, which like reduces life down to its most basic element. You know, your job is to go and hit somebody, and then they hit you back. That's what you go out and you do in the morning. You come back, and uh, you know, I mean, it's basically it's as, as primal as you can get. I think in the quote civilized unquote world, and I guess through them we live out all those urges. Those fire escapes are on um, in Hell's Kitchen somewhere, 44th Street and 8th Avenue or whatever. 
People went crazy. That shit would have never happened if Tommy was over there taking care of it. I mean, you know he's got to be with Tommy to fight in New York to get a title shot. I mean, he's gonna wind up fucking punch drunk, your brother. I know. You know, you gotta make him understand that it's the best thing for everybody involved. I said I know. This is the widest shot we have in the street. The idea was not to, to redo city blocks for period, but rather uh, detailed suits, hair, cars, stoops, windows, etc. And that was the idea to give suggestions. A fire escape is a fire escape from 1919 all the way up to 1990. So uh, it was a way to save money and to um, give impression through details. Judges didn't know who knows what happened with them. The people know. A lot of the uh, shots of what Jake sees in the film uh, played around with different speeds, different degrees of slow motion. Uh, for example, the shot you just saw of his wife, well, that's, that's uh, maybe 36 frames. It just gives it a little extra intensity to it. Is it done? No, it's not done. The scene was inspired very much by Marty's own memories of arguments in his own family <laughs> around dinner time in which often things ended up getting thrown against the wall. <laughs> I think he told me he has a very strong memory of blueberry pie against a, a yellow wall. That sort of is the basic inspiration for this scene. You want your steak? Yeah, right now. I remember working on the scene with Bob and with uh, Laurie Flax, the one who played his wife, and I recall that we, um, we felt that it should go a little stronger, and that's uh, when we decided that the table should fly across the room. The intercutting between these two scenes was not necessarily intended originally, but it's just one of those things you often end up doing in editing. You <clears throat> interrupt a scene and insert sections of another to make the flow better in the film. And also sometimes, because this film was so heavily improvised, it, it, uh, we would get find ourselves in jams, and intercutting would help us. Tomorrow. Let me go. All right. Where are you going to be? Be at the gym or the other joint? One or two. I'll catch you by the gym. All right. South. Yeah. He's like, complain some more. I want to hear. I want to hear. I want to hear. Bob particularly found this woman's abrasiveness very funny, and she kept making him laugh during the improvisations. These kind of tenement buildings in which everybody's arguments can be heard. Uh, by everyone else living in the building is obviously a very strong memory for Marty, who grew up in buildings like this. That's our prop man, who had a wonderful voice for yelling in, in alleys, just like in the areas I grew up in. <laughs> I'm going to get over that dog, and I'm going to eat him for lunch. You hear what I'm saying? You hear me, Larry? Larry! Crazy animal. Who's an animal? Your mother's an animal, you son of a bitch. Oh. You're going to find your dog dead in the hallway tomorrow, you fuck. Yeah. 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 People can hear you. It's not for the whole family. You break anything in there, I'm going to kill you. I swear to God, I'm going to come in there and I'm going to kill you. The song in the background is Ink Spot's Whispering Grass, I think. I always like pushing the falsetto notes through the, um, through the action, through the violence. Marty has an incredible memory for pieces of music that he's heard throughout his life, sometimes when he was very, very young. He never forgets where he heard that piece of music for the first time or who he was with. These 
first moments when he hears these pieces of music seem to burn into his consciousness, and he carries them around with him, sometimes for 20 or 30 years, and then suddenly the right place for them in a film occurs to him. Remember this scene, too, came out of an improvisation that uh, we were talking about where he sets himself up for something that is almost impossible. He sets himself up for wanting to be like Joe Lewis, and uh, he's just physically not that way. I mean, he's not, a, he's not a heavyweight. He's a middleweight, and it's a character who kind of sets himself up constantly to feel bad about himself because he isn't what he is, <laughs> and he's not satisfied with what he is. He wants to be more. What that means, no matter how big I get, no matter who I fight, no matter what I do, I ain't never going to fight Joe Lewis. Yeah, that's right. He's a heavyweight, you're a middleweight. We know that. I ain't never going to get a chance to fight the best there is. And you know something? I'm better than him. I ain't never gonna get a chance. You're asking me what's wrong. Like, you're crazy to even think about something like that. I mean, he's a fucking heavyweight or a middleweight. It's impossible. It'll never happen, so why go crazy thinking about it? It's not normal. Now, Joe Pesci, uh, Bob had seen a film, I think on television, called The Death Collector, which was a very low-budget film made about mafia in... Um, it was made in New Jersey, made by a guy named Ralph DeVito, who was a friend of Joe's, and Joe was in it, and Bob uh, liked him. I think Joe played the part of a, a fellow who ran a uh, crap game. And uh, in California, um, Bob requested that we look at it, and we did, and I liked him very much, and Joe came in. But at that point, I think Joe was not interested uh, too much in, in um, pursuing an acting career. I think he had worked for a while, um, uh, whatever, and uh, and he felt he wasn't, uh, may not have been right for him, etc., and... Uh, uh, it took us a while. It took us a couple of months before everybody felt comfortable with each other. And he was kind enough to come in, Joe, and read, I think, two or three times. Because he was a little older than we thought uh, to play to play the character. But uh, he had an honesty and um, uh, a truth that uh, he understood these people. And uh, uh, finally, we made that decision. Wrap it around your hand. How many times I got to tell you? The way that he worked with Bob was wonderful because there, there was a, a kinetic thing between them that made the improvisations quite remarkable, difficult to cut because they weren't shot with two cameras. And uh, that sometimes left us in a bit of a hole if one actor had gone off on a wonderful improvisation and we didn't have the other actor's response to it. Oh, come on. You want to stop now? That's enough. That's... Come on. He said, well, hit me. Uh, he asked his brother to hit him. Bob just said, well, do it again, and do it again. We kept repeating it, and that's when we got into sort of a rhythm of it, and uh, we thought that would really set the character uh, on the course that we wanted for the audience to understand, to see what, what, what they'd expect from this man. Again, the uh, first shot of the guy sitting down of Frank Vincent and the others, uh, these fellows here, the very first shot was slightly slow motion. Just to give a feel, sinister feeling. And Frank Vincent, we found through Joe. Uh, used to be a partner of Joe's, uh, I don't know, I think they uh, had sort of a lounge act or something. And the other two fellows, Frank Adonis on the right and the fellow in the middle is named Joe Bono. We um, cast them uh, through the normal channels with Sis Corman. Come up here. 
Answer me like Paul. Yeah, why? Well, can't my friends up here? Bring this fucking in with a pipe. Take it easy. Don't ever bring him up here with him. Now the film, we did so much, so much violence in the film, but nobody ever got hurt except for this one moment, right here. You hear that? Oh, that's real. That's Joe broke his rib. Uh, Bob broke Joe's rib there by accident. Joey, we're gonna go. I'll call you tomorrow, huh? Hey, Jake, watch you don't hurt yourself. How's your wife? Okay. Listen, we always found fascinating the kind of amount of amount of hatred he had for these guys. We, we, we sort of, you know, in his his mind, he's in the ring killing himself, and uh, they're going to take uh, half his money. Why should they? And I think it's justifiable. I understand it, but uh, and he was pretty tough. So uh, we always we always found that fascinating. We always felt that we really should try to just stay as true as possible to the, what we thought the character was. We're not saying this is the way Jake LaMotta really was or his brother was really this way. Uh, he reflected certain things that we found interesting, uh, uh, the passion that he had and, and uh, uh, the sense of, uh, of uh, self-destruction and destruction of the people around him, um, and then his, uh, his guilt with that. Uh, and, and so we came up with a movie that, well, it's not necessarily the life of Jake LaMotta, as per se, how can one put that on film? We don't know, because if you ask people who were, who were with him at the time, his wife Vicky or Pete Savage, he was alive at the time, um, it becomes a Rashomon situation. Everybody has their own version of what the truth is, and so we try to remain as true as possible to what we thought the character was like, the character that we wanted to portray. In a sense, it's um, our own feelings about a person like this, and a lot of it, I think, comes from uh, all of us in the film, uh, myself, Bob, uh, Schrader, Mardik, uh, Joe, etc. We all uh, see parts of ourselves in him and the people around him. Vicky, that's all I know. Oh, Vicky. She knows them. She knows them, they know her. She comes to the pool every day and everybody knows each other. You know how that shit works. She go with them? She go with nobody. She's 15 years old. Where the fuck's she gonna go? You gonna take a Copacabana? It's the kind of scene that drives a Hollywood sound editor absolutely mad because Marty insists on shooting on locations. He feels it gives the actors and himself something important. And to try and salvage the dialogue from this scene was very hard for the Hollywood editors. The noise of the surroundings and the pool were damaging the intelligibility of the track. So Hollywood sound editors particularly detest this kind of <laughs> decision to shoot in real atmospheres. No, you bang it? No. Tell me the truth. I just told you the truth. I tell you the truth the first time. You don't have to ask me again. I never do that. I always tell you the truth. If I did it, you would know. I took her out a couple of times. You know? Why would I? You didn't try to fuck her? I try to fuck anything. She didn't go. She didn't go for it. Naturally. Naturally. She knew better. Maybe she knew better. She knew you were an animal. She knew it's no good if you go with her. Kathy Moriarty. She was about 16 or 17 years old or so at the time we did the film with her. Uh, Joel knew her and uh, brought her in to meet us. And uh, she had a, a, a very quiet um, authority that we thought was fascinating. And when, when she spoke, we loved the, the sound of her voice. 
and uh, um, she's never acted before. I think she had done something or won a beauty contest in a disco or something like that. That Joe had a had part of. After meeting lots of uh, very wonderful actresses, we decided to go with someone who's new, was really somebody who was tied in directly with those feelings of these type of people. I mean, really, the one of them. Joe was still one, and, and so was Kathy, and to a certain extent, Bob and I uh, like to retain those uh, those roots, you know. It kind of helped what we felt would be truthful throughout the rest of the picture in terms of the way that everybody related to each other. The young girls from me. And all the tenants of this building were across the street watching this scene, and when it was over, they all applauded. They they took her part. They liked her a lot. They, they, they thought she was right. This was shot in the um, the Ritz. Now the Ritz. It's called on, on 11th Street, I believe, downtown. And uh, this used to be an old dance hall. Um, and this is actually the way the dance hall looked from the 20s and 30s. And my mother and father used to, there used to be neighborhood dances. And uh, because Elizabeth Street and Moss Street and Mulberry Street were only 10 or 12 blocks away, the, the church dances were, were given at this place, Webster Hall, it was called. And um, uh, it we chose to shoot in there because of that. Um, and... During the period when I was growing up in the 50s and early 60s in the Lower East Side, this is where our church had the same dances. And it was looked exactly like this. This is exactly the way it was. The priest going around saying hello to everybody, the band on the stage, fights breaking out, the usual. But these are all neighborhood fellows here. Hey, Father. Hello, Father. You want to get late? Sure. Father, where you go? Bless the table. Give us a shot, will you? put money in the basket this week. After a while, uh, the point of view of Jake, whenever he really looks over, especially if somebody's with Vicky, um, becomes pretty obviously slow motion. And it was just a very simplistic idea I had, which was to, you know, sort of burn those images in his memory. And what would burn in, when, you, when you remember something like that, you kind of see every movement and you see the movements accentuated and uh, exaggerated. And that's why we use so much, uh, so much slow motion. The use of slow motion in this film is quite extraordinary. Marty always took three speeds of slow motion for each shot that he knew he was possibly going to use because he knew that possibly 48 frames per second or maybe 90 frames per second or 120 frames per second, one of those speeds would be ideal for the moment that it was needed. And this song I remember now swings and, and kind of mixes with uh, Big Noise from Winnetka, another popular song of the period. 
when they go outside as if the music, music is like coming from a uh, uh, from a car radio or something. When I was growing up, there always seemed to be difficulties between those Italians who had just come over from the from the uh, from the old country, uh, mixing with the Italian Americans who were born here, and that that's what that fight is about. Hey, Vicky, Vicky, Vicky! Hi, Joey. How you doing? All right. What are you doing? Yeah, not too much. What are you doing? I was like the dialogue what? in this scene. No, it's my brothers. Did you ever meet my brother? I hardly say anything to each other. What are you doing? Nothing. All right. Hey, Jack. Where? This jacket was rather important because Bob usually uh, feels that uh, wardrobe is so important. And, and, and finally, at one point, with Richard Bruno, we found this old jacket, and when he put it on, uh, the character started to fit into place, and it was his favorite piece of wardrobe throughout the picture. Great deal of work goes into the choosing of these clothes. Sometimes they're clothes that are found in secondhand stores or seen in a shop window, or often they're pieces of clothing that belong to Marty himself. These are the things I think that sometimes aren't recognized uh, as great costume work, but for me, they are—they really are. I always like this dialogue between the two of them, and between the fence. There's always have sort of had fond memories of the. Uh, I hate the scene with Brando and even Marie Saint in, uh, on the waterfront on the roof. It's of course, to totally different things, but just that mesh, that wire in between the two of them reminds me of it. I mean, on the waterfront they had dialogue. On this week, <laughs> in this we were sort of. Uh, uh, we wanted more behavior rather than dialogue in those scenes. Behavior and murmurs. What does that mean? Means the game is over. There were scenes written with um, the father, but uh, there were clearance problems and we had to uh, rewrite them so that he, the idea was there, but uh, the person was never seen or heard. And again, it's all behavior and body language. This what these scenes are about. Uh, they don't really communicate with words, these people, and people I know, and a lot of people, and 
it's not necessarily a literary literary group. So it's uh, it's more the way people gesture and or position how the, how they sit, what they do, what the, how they move, than uh, speaking about exactly how they feel. I become rather inarticulate that about that sort of thing. Why don't you sit over here? It's a little closer. So far away, like on the other side of the room. The picture on the wall over the table is a picture of Capri, I think, or uh, Naples. And that's, odd, oddly enough, it's the picture that was on my grandmother's wall uh, when I grew up on, on Elizabeth Street. She had that picture, and I, that always represented Italy to me. I've worked on all of Marty's films for the last 10 years. And uh, 10 years before that, I had uh, worked with him on the editing of his first feature film, Who's That Knocking?, which he made when he was still at New York University. I met him there in a six weeks summer course, and it was quite clear to me even then that this was going to be someone who was going to be very important to the history of American film. I myself was supposed to be a diplomat. I studied uh, political science at Cornell University, but when I went to take the very final exams for the Foreign Service, they told me that I was very much too idealistic and would be unhappy in the Foreign Service. And so I went back to Columbia University to do some graduate work and read an ad in the New York Times for an assistant film editing job. I went to answer it. I had always been interested in films, old films on television, but had no idea what in a assistant film editor even was, and the man who was advertising the uh, position was a terrible old hack who was butchering the great films of Antonioni, Fellini, uh, Truffaut uh, for late-night television here in New York City. He would do horrifying things, like if they told him the film was too long for a late-night slot, he would just take out two reels of Rocco and his brothers. But I learned enough from the job to know that I wanted to pursue working in film, and, and that's how I ended up at NYU in, a, in the summer course where I met Marty. We worked together on documentaries in the streets of New York uh, and against the war in Vietnam, and we also worked together on the, the film Woodstock. But then for the next 10 years, I was unable to work on Marty's films because he went to Hollywood, and I was not a member of the union. Finally, on Raging Bull, I did get into the union, and I've worked with him ever since. Beautiful symbolism here of the two brothers in a picture frame between Jake and Vicky, and Jake and Vicky's relationship will basically rip the brothers apart. Sugar Ray Robinson and Jake Lamont in Detroit for their second fight. The undefeated Sugar Ray defeated Jake. This is um, one of the Sugar Ray fights. I think it's the second fight he actually fought with him. The ring is extended here. That's not just a wide angle lens. What I did was uh, I had the actual ring cut in four quarters, and then 
elongated by adding pieces to it to give a distorted feeling. Now the beginning of unrealistic sound effects used by the sound editor Frank Warner to create different feelings in each of the fights. Slightly animal-like noises you heard there. That idea will be developed further and further. The shot where Sugar Ray was knocked through the ropes there was very complicated optical. We slowed down and speeded up and inserted flashbulbs to heighten the impact of the fact that it was probably one of the very few times that Sugar Ray was ever knocked off his feet. This is actually not triple framed in a lab or double framed in a lab. This is actually done this particular shot on the camera. We actually speeded up the motor and then got it back down to normal. One of the main ideas was like the last waltz where you don't show any of the audience really. What you do is you, you stay inside the ring the way we stayed on the stage for the last waltz. But here, staying in the ring, it gives you license to distort the visuals and the sound. So as, as if you were the one doling out the punishment and receiving the punishment. The shot of uh, Sugar Ray falling through the ropes uh, was taken from an 8x10 still that we saw. There was some discussion as to whether, I mean, I think uh, Sugar Ray had his own point of view about that. He said he was never knocked out of the ring, but the still had him falling through the ropes and looked like to us touching the canvas. That's why we froze the frame there. This love scene is actually directly from the book. I think one of the things that's uh, quite noticeable about Marty's films is the fact that there is very little what would be called blatant sex in them. There is a very strong sexual feeling in the films, but he really avoids actual blatant sex in, in the scenes. I think he feels it stops the picture. The only time you actually see it is in his very early films when he was still trying to break into Hollywood and was forced to put scenes like that into his films, for example, Boxcar Bertha or the footage that he had to shoot to insert into Who's That Knocking in order to get an American distributor. He was told he wouldn't get an American distributor unless there was a nude scene in it, so he went to Amsterdam and filmed such a scene and inserted it into the film. But by and large, he, he does avoid nudity and blatant sex, and that's why it's always been very amusing to us that in the film After Hours, we were given a bad rating for overall sensuality. <laughs> but I guess it proves that the power of uh, sexuality that he does put into the films is certainly there. There's a very delicate uh, background here. Again, you're constantly hearing things through the windows of these uh, tenement buildings, and uh, the decision about what you hear is made very carefully by the sound editor. Sometimes there's very good sound already recorded on the location when the film is shot, but often an ambiance is created by the sound editor whose job it is to find some sort of outside sound, whether it be a dog or a policeman or a siren or um, just people talking or children playing. And 
the decision about what is used in scenes like this is very critical for Marty, and he makes these choices very carefully and then blends the sound effect into the film in in a very, very careful way because you you don't want to distract the audience from what's going on. On the other hand, you do want to create the feeling of life going on everywhere around them. Frank Warner was our sound editor, a very brilliant man who was won an Academy Award for Close Encounters, for the sound and Close Encounters, and did a really beautiful job on this film. Has a very pure way of approaching sound. Uh, he doesn't put a lot of things in. He makes very careful decisions and believes also very much in using the lack of sound as, as a way of making an effect, which of course is quite obvious in several of the fights. Jake had an incredible capacity for punishment, prided himself on, as he says in the early scene with his brother, to, his ability to take it. And one of the things he did to prepare himself for fights was create situations like this in which he would almost get to the stage of making love to his wife and then withdraw from it. It was a way to toughen himself up. Now this sequence we decided to shoot, I decided to line it up all with long, long lenses, uh, 600 millimeter, etc., and give it that wavy effect, almost like a, a heat wave, uh, like a desert, um, which is just so dripping, dripping with heat. And uh, we're able to shoot very, very far away in the soundstage and put flames in front of the lens, so we got this rippling effect. Actually, it came from an idea. I mean, I was spurred on by an idea I saw, not by an idea, but by a shot I saw in uh, a movie I like a great deal called The Steel Helmet by Sam Fuller, especially these shots of Robinson as, he, as he's knocked down for a second. Yeah, and he starts to get up as a scene where Gene Evans is in a firefight at the end of the film and the smoke rising around him. And he, was, he seemed like it was in slow motion to me. And it was very powerful and very frightening, I think. And, uh, and so from that shot came the idea of shooting this particular fight scene all along lenses and, and using flames in front of the lens. I usually don't like to use long lenses because it's too indefinite. Every now and then, shooting long lenses, though, you get some nice images of faces floating by the lens of the, of the referee, and we kept that sort of thing. The use of a flame in front of the lens in order to create this distortion is used here to show that the unreality for Lamada that he could possibly lose this fight, he feels unfairly, is artistically shown here by 
the disturbing, uh, almost mirage-like effect of, of the way you see things. They only gave him that fucking decision because he's going in the army next week. That's the only reason. I knocked him down. I don't know what else I got to do. I don't know what I got to do. I don't know what I got to do. You won them. They robbed you. They're miserable because their mother's taking up the fucking ass. That's why. I've done a lot of bad things, Joey. Maybe it's coming back to me. Dealing with the idea of guilt here when he says, I've done some bad things, I've done some really bad things, we kind of like that. That, uh, uh, and Jonathan Demi gave me a, uh, painting by a folk artist of Jake LaMotta. It was inspired by the film, and around the painting, it was written, uh, it was a painting on blackboard, actually, and it was a wooden border, and around the border was written, it said, Jake fought like he didn't deserve to live. And I said, well, gee, he just... I'd have to make the whole movie about it, and uh, he just did it in one, in one little painting on blackboard. So, <laughs> you know, well, that was not that we had that really clearly in mind, and, and that we said we're going to make a film about a guy who punishes himself and everyone around him. It just we never verbalized that. It's just that we again went along with those emotions and the, those actions. Home movies are in color because Jake actually was able at the time in the 40s to have 16 millimeter and color movies. And these are actually shot, even with flash frames and jump cuts, as close as possible to the scenes in the home movies that he did. In order to achieve the effect of old, faded 16 millimeter film, uh, we had this material transferred to a Technicolor three strip master and desaturated the color, kept pulling color out, changing it, uh, until Marty was satisfied that it looked the way he felt old home movies would look that had been around in a family for a long time. Also, we cut into it, splice uh, clear frames or colored frames of uh, film, maybe sometimes one frame, maybe a sprocket long, uh, into the negative to make it look as if it had been repaired many times. And Marty personally scratched the film, much to the horror of the negative cutter, whose job is never to allow a scratch to touch or occur ever on a film. Um, he took a coat hanger and personally scratched a lot of these things you're seeing here in, into the film to give it uh, authenticity. But he often said to me that Jake LaMotta's own home movies were a, uh, perhaps a more moving document of his life than Raging Bull is. He said, in spite of the smiles and pretended happiness, you see, you could see his family disintegrating in his own home movies. During the first run of the film, I was going around several theaters trying to check on how the film was being projected, and I found a projectionist taking out the color section of the home movies. Of the, he was taking it out of the reel to reject it, and I, I asked him what he was doing, and he said, well, obviously there's been a big mistake here. There's, someone's accidentally spliced in. Uh, a section of color into this black and white print, so I'm taking it out. <laughs> Which is something that happens a great deal to us in motion picture business. We always say the projectionist is the final editor, 
the choice of Mascagni for this film it was incredible inspiration and Marty wanted a version that he had had all his life. The studio tried to talk him into using another recording of the same piece, but we listened to every possible version of it and none of them had the emotional power that this particular recording did. In the soundtrack we have Louis Jordan and Ella Fitzgerald singing uh, Stone Cold Dead in the Market. It was a very popular song at the time. And actually, it was going to be the theme song of the picture until we just put up the Mascagni against that image in the, in the ring at the beginning of the film. Um, but Thelma and Irwin Winkler, my producer, they put up and said, watch this. And it was really very nice, and we decided to go with that. I think in some places, uh, some critics have called it lacrimose. Uh, but uh, I just had a nice sense about it, and it made me feel um, a kind of sadness, not necessarily uh, phony. It was just a, a sadness about people struggling to live, that's all. Now, this was rewritten and rewritten and rewritten, this scene, because I didn't understand the politics or the mechanics of him being able to get a title shot. So it's very funny because, to me, it's very funny, and it just drove us crazy cutting it and cutting it and cutting it and rewriting. So the speeches that Joe has is really me trying to figure out what's going on. This scene actually is based upon, Marty says, what happens to him when his agent tries to explain the technicalities of a deal in Hollywood. And uh, they have to, they tell him now this is you know there's going to be two points here and uh, you're going to get a percentage of so and so and and then uh, after they finished explaining it all to him he says wait a minute what do you mean uh, I don't understand and then the agent has to start all over again and that was the basic sort of idea that Marty gave the two actors to use uh, here for this scene because Jake just really cannot understand all of these shenanigans because for him he goes in there. Uh, puts himself on the line, and uh, he doesn't like the idea of any sort of other reason for him winning or losing a fight. He will decide uh, if he's able to win or lose a fight. And so he just refuses to really understand uh, what his brother is telling him here deliberately. they got to give you the shot. You understand? If you win, you win. If you lose, you still win. There's no way you can lose. This scene was extremely difficult to edit because... We had wonderful improvisations going on between these two actors who spark each other off wonderfully. But Marty was unable to get two cameras into the room, so he had to shoot with only one, and that meant that, as I had said before, if, if Joe Pesci happens to hit upon a particularly strong vein of improvisation and we don't have Robert De Niro's answering him, then it has to, the camera has to be set up for Robert De Niro's angle, and we have to hope that somehow we will get footage which will intercut with the very highly original way that Joe has explored some vein. It was a difficult scene to shoot because the kitchen was very small, the kids were crying, and as usual, you find yourself right in the, uh, the flight pattern for the day of the airport. So we had to stop every time a plane went over, etc. Get out of here, go inside, get out, take the vision inside. I always like uh, what Teresa Saldana does here, because this is really a basic reaction that would happen in the household. We'll make her cry. Yeah, but they're pretty tough ladies and uh, uh, remain pretty strong throughout the picture. No distractions, no wives, no phone calls, nobody around to body. Go right on your usual schedule, your usual diet. It's just fascinating. The scene then becomes about about his his obsession with her and, and his jealousies. 
And why? I don't know. I mean, this is, you know, I, I, can't, I, couldn't exp I can't explain the character. I mean, I can't explain any of this stuff. It's just what interested us about him and parts of ourselves in him, etc. And we just wanted to explore it and explore it and explore it. And I think uh, maybe in the process of exploring it, try to exorcise a little of it. But uh, that doesn't work. And you're just lucky if you get maybe just a little fraction of some sort of truth. So, so what? She was talking on your behalf. Well, on my behalf. She was talking about pretty kid. She's saying he's good looking. What are you talking about? So you make him ugly. What's the difference? That's why. Never mind, never mind. Just do it. All right. You know what you should do? Go inside and be nice to her. Make up with her. And tell her to take her out. We'll go out. You want to go out before you go away, don't you? That's why you go away with a clear head. You know you took her out. You went and died. You had a good time. All right? All right. And again, a piece of music here was kind of important. It was a song, again, I remember from the late 40s, Heartaches by Ted Weems, has a big whistling section that goes on. And sometimes the music is used for commenting on the action, etc. You have to know what the song is, what the title is. But most of the time it's just used because I, I like the pieces and it fits into the uh, time period. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's great to be back in the Copa Lounge. What a great audience. They actually went back to the Copa Cabana to shoot. Uh, mainly in the Copa Lounge, we didn't shoot downstairs, the Copa Lounge. A lot of people go there for drinks mainly, and uh, mainly a lot of the tourists would go downstairs for uh, the show. Uh, this is pretty much the way the old Copa looked. Let's hear for the great Jake LaMotta, ladies and gentlemen. What's your name again? Janet. Janet, sorry. Yeah, just been, uh, it's uh, post time. Post-time was uh, sort of in honor of Joey Lewis, who was a famous comedian. He used to say that every time when he, when he, uh, when he raised a glass. And uh, he was a, a famous comic, always played the Copa. And Frank Sinatra did his life story in a film called uh, The Joker is Wild. And he was a guy who had a run-in with uh, gangsters in Chicago. He was a singer originally, Joey Lewis. And he didn't want to sing in their clubs, and they cut his throat. So he wound up becoming a comic. Now, this shot was taken actually in a different part of the building, that close up, because we ran into a scheduling problem and we had to reshoot it. And we just had to cut it. I'll see you later, Joey. Hey, it's some suit. He looks good, huh, Jack? Huh? <laughs> I thought that was my best joke. <laughs> All these slow-motion points of view of Jake, of course, uh, giving the feeling of his obsessiveness, his uh, heightened, highly heightened, suspicious nature. And we found it really worked beautifully to put real sound, uh, actual 
uh, 24 frame per second sound behind uh, slow motion shots to give a slightly disturbing feeling. Then we thought this is also another good opportunity to intensify the paranoia and jealousy. That's Mordic Martin, uh, the waiter, uh, the co-writer of the picture, and uh, this fellow on the right, and my old friend from NYU who wrote Mean Streets with me. Next to Tommy is uh, my father with his glasses there on the right. And he sort of plays the cousin. All these guys always had, always have somebody who's like their brother-in-law or their cousin or whatever working with them and never really say anything, but they're always there. Seriously, I'm, a, I'm only kidding you. What a fucking kid. That's the best fucking fighter around. Oh, the Moulinians, forget about it. They're all afraid to fight you. How you feeling, all right? I'm all right. Good, strong. Huh, strong, yeah, I'm all right. Then Gennaro's got to watch his ass, right? I think you should. Huh. Oh. Last three, four times I won nothing but money with the guy. Oh, he's no piece of cake. That's a good fighter. Huh? Very attractive guy. All the girls like him. <laughs> no marks. Clean. Huh. Jake, am I wrong? Uh, aren't you getting a few pounds? Yeah, a few pounds. I knock it off right away. No oh, problem. Right off. Right off. Huh. De Niro has already look, gained a little weight here. Show that he's beginning to get a little out of shape. Uh, not care so much about his fitness in the ring. This is life is beginning to go sour. Always say about everything you got. Everything. Everything. I'm gonna open this hole like this. Excuse my French girl. I'm gonna make him suffer. I'm gonna make his mother wish she never had him. Make him his dog meat. What? We improvised a little of these things he was gonna do to Gennaro. They kept getting a little funnier. I mean, I don't know, I got a problem. I should fuck him on fire. I remember that we had to do a television version, which was Kiss Him, I think. I don't know whether to kiss him or fight him. You mean you want me to get him to fuck you? Me? Yeah. No, I don't want to fuck me. I can do that easily. How are you going to do that? Because I get you both in the ring, I'll give you both a fucking beat, and you both can fuck each other. Ah, you... <laughs> I get all full of blush. You're used to that. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, drink up. That's ginger ale, Jake. Come on, tell me. Okay, 
this particular scene was always a favorite of ours. We liked to do this in the way he intrudes on her, even in her sleep. And then I remember the cross over the bed here is actually the cross I think my mother and father had over their bed for years. Just took it from their room. These scenes of Jake's mounting obsessiveness and jealousy and paranoia is a subject Marty can explore very well because I think it's very close to himself. He uh, he understands this kind of madness and um, can therefore really portray it. Tony Janeiro fight here. You know, he made it into a dramatic point of acting on his own aggressions against uh, what he felt threatened by. At this point, we started to get pretty much involved with our sound effects to the point where uh, practically every other punch was a different sound effect. Frank Warner had uh, most of his sound effects uh, very, very different uh, from uh, uh, each one, with cantaloupe being cut, uh, smashed open, a watermelon, who knows? I mean, he wouldn't tell us what they were. In fact, I think he, he told us he burned them so nobody else would use them prosthetics here, the, uh, the special effects. Nobody bleeds like that from the nose, but the idea is, is, is impressions of the battles in the rings, the way the character we have of Jake would perceive it. Great difference in all the fight sequences in this film as opposed to almost any other film you'll see is that the camera is always in the ring and this is a very difficult, expensive, time-consuming thing to do. Marty, of course, after having looked at many other fight films, was insistent that that's the way he wanted to shoot the film. One of the Rocky films I saw consisted of basically five or six cameras set up outside the ring to get a lot of different coverage, but it's the intensity within the ring that um, makes a difference here. We're very interested in these scenes of him preparing, a sort of ritualistic cleansing all the time of getting into the ring before he, getting, before he gets into the ring, a kind of religious uh, feeling to it. That's Pete Savage, the guy with the um, white hair. Peter Savage is you know, the film's producer association with and uh, always Jake's close friend over the years. And Bob and I, odd thing, Bob and I went to 
reworked the script in the island of uh, St. Martin. And, oh, about less than a year after the film came out, I think Pete died on that, that same island. Went there for vacation and got a heart attack. That's a beautiful table. He's working downtown, big building, working elevator. Happened to be there the other day. And that's the original bar of the Copa that we had to take. It was somewhere else. We took it. Uh, we, we got it from where it was and put it there. And that's the original bartender, a guy named Mickey LaFaro, who's a close friend of mine. Uh, his son, we were very close friends uh, in, in grammar school together. Hey, Joey. Shut up. Just shut up. Now that I feel like I'm a prisoner, I can't walk. I look at somebody the wrong way, I get smacked. You think you're right or something the way you're fucking yelling? Yeah, you're I wrong. Right. No, you're wrong. Look, I am right. I'm tired of having to turn around and having both of you up my ass all the time. Shut up. No. Don't make me Look, I'm tired of listening to you. Don't make me brother. I'm not wrong. Place. And what am I supposed to do? When 20 years old, I gotta go home and sleep by myself every night? What the fuck did you marry? Because I love her. You do? I love him. What am I supposed to do? This guy don't even want to fuck me. He's just been a contender too long. He'll be all right as soon as he gets his shot, and then everything will be okay. You won't have to fucking run around like a plot zone. Jay, he's never going to be champ. Too many people hate him. And you're drinking with them. And I'm going to finish my drink, and I'm going to have a good time. I'm doing it. Then what do you get your stuff? You ain't staying here. Get your stuff. We're making an ass. Joey, my brother. Get your stuff. Joey, come on. Shut up. Shut up. Mind your fucking business and shut up. You're taking this all wrong, Joey. I said shut up. Okay, nice. What's the matter with you? There's nothing going on here. This is innocent. We're only having a few drinks. Come on. Come on. Relax. Relax. Come on. This fight's all set. My brother's wife. Joey, there's nothing going on. I'm sorry. I really am. We're friends. We can straighten this. Right? Right? Nothing going on. Nothing going on. This we actually shot with two cameras. The stunt work here. That guy was really a bouncer, and uh, he was sent in to stop the fight, and he was so big nobody could move. We literally couldn't move. He was so he was so strong. But um, a couple of the extras who knew the Copa well in the old days, hey, it seems like old times. This kind of violence Marty grew up with all during the years he lived on Elizabeth Street, where going out in the evenings uh, there was always violence in the nightclubs that he went to and uh, uh, also of course tremendous violence on the street just during the day where sometimes the police would come around and say to the parents uh, take your kids in there's going to be a killing because they knew the, the, the mafia had announced that there was, someone was going to be knocked off and so the mothers would bring their children in and uh, someone would get killed and then the children would go back out to play again so violence is something that Marty portrays very realistically and of course here the there's as much violence going on outside the ring as there is inside the social clubs were places that existed on marty's street places he spent a great deal of time with in his youth these are just images of the old espresso cups and things that i grew up around a part of my childhood I think it's a poster of all the popes behind them there, <laughs> since uh, St. Peter. We're going to forget about it. Huh? 
What I want you to do now, you two guys, I want you to shake hands, forget this whole thing, and no grudges. That's the most important thing, no grudges. Now, come on, shake hands. Me, if it's all right with you. Huh? Huh? I only wish this thing never happened, honey. We all wish it never happened. Good hell, Savvy, let me talk to you more on Yeah. All right. I'll see you Monday, Tuesday. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot all about it. Oh, you fucking nuts. Kill him. Aside from everything else, Joey, the family all right? Yeah, fine. Everybody's fine. Jake Lamont was the only man ever to admit having taken a, um, a bribe to lose a fight, whoever admitted it. And um, there's not just one level here of uh, they had to do it because of uh, Tommy wanted it. It just isn't that simple. No one ever knows the real reason. There isn't just one reason and uh, why people do things. And it's all a matter of pressure in different groups and certain facts of life at that point in time. Listen to me. Now, Jake, the guy's become an embarrassment. He's embarrassing me with certain people, and I'm looking very bad. I can't deliver a kid from my own goddamn neighborhood. Listen with him. Why does he have to make it so hard on himself? For Christ's sake, he comes to me and make it easier for me. man's got a head of rock. You know, it's hard to explain, Tom. He's, uh, Jack respects you. I mean, he's, he don't even say hello to anybody. You know, you, he talks to, he likes you. It's just that uh, when he gets something on his mind, you know, he's got a hard head, he likes to do things his own way. I mean, Jesus Christ could come off the cross sometimes. He don't give a fuck. He's going to do what he wants to do. He wants to make it on his own, you know? Thinks he can make it on his own. Make it on his own. He thinks he's going to walk in there and become champion on his own. Right? Yeah, huh? it's crazy. Yeah, he's crazy. He's got no respect for nobody. He doesn't listen to nobody. That's not crazy. I respect you. He doesn't respect anybody. Now, you do this for me, you understand? You tell him. I don't care how colorful he is, how great he is. He could beat all the Sugar Ray Robinsons and the Tony Janeiros in the world, but he ain't gonna get a shot at that title, not without us, he ain't. Kind of a key scene between uh, these two characters in the piece at this point. I always love the character of uh, that Joe, Joe Pesci is playing here because he is the man in the middle, in a way, because he's related, the brother. Uh, it was fueled along with uh, memories of um, a picture which was very, very strong in my mind. And I was a child, I saw it on television over and over again. It was called Force of Evil. It was directed and written by Abe Polonsky. It starred uh, John Garfield and uh, Thomas Gomez. And Force of Evil was, uh, I think, the first film I can remember seeing that had applied directly to um, a world that I kind of knew and saw around me. And then later on, On the Waterfront was another one like that. Force of Evil had a lot to do with the two brothers, Garfield and Gomez. And about the responsibility one has, moral responsibility one has for the other. And we found that fascinating. And the, the spirit, we had hoped that the spirit of that film uh, is felt a little in this. Of course, the dialogue is quite special. I remember the British writing about it in Sight and Sound. Uh, I forget who wrote the article, but he was describing watching the film over and over again. And at one point, he turned to 
colleague next to him and said, I got it's written in blank verse. And uh, if you listen to the dialogue, it's quite, quite extraordinary. It's really a picture to look at. It seems like it's a nicely uh, structured and 90-minute uh, B film, but uh, it has much more going for it. And the relationships of the brothers and the people around them and the dialogue is so beautiful and the way it's shot is extraordinary and Garfield is remarkable. And Force of Evil um, uh, was the only film that uh, Polanski was to direct for 20 or 22 years because it was blacklisted and it was one of the great losses uh, to American films or world cinema. Billy Fox, 173 and three quarter pounds. Jake LaMotta. Jake LaMotta was the technical advisor on the picture and consultant and um, for all the, um, mainly for all the fight scenes. But when, when we finished shooting the fight scenes after 10 weeks, Bob looked at him, we talked to him, and we, we said, well, well, Jake, and he says, yeah, I know. I'll see you in a year. He said, yeah, that's right, because we wanted to be alone doing the private scenes, uh, the personal scenes, I should say, because he understood that you could not be, there's no such thing as doing it exactly as it happened or who the people were. It becomes a, uh, they say a kind of dramatic license that we take. It was better that we'd be left alone with that. I'm gonna win. There's no way I'm going down. I don't go down for nobody. That's what I want. I want you to know that. All right, Colonel. Right, you came down here just for that last thing. That was it. Madison Square Garden feature attraction. In this corner, weighing 170 pounds. Got a picture. Pounds. Fellas, can we get a picture over here? Yes. Billy Fox. I always like it. in a movie. Usually, people sit down and they got the seat they like. But I always tried to get it to the point. You know, two characters sit down, two main characters, and them. Um, and he doesn't like that seat. Could you change seats with him? Because the guy in front of him is too big. I always thought that was fun. The Fox fight was shot very simply because it didn't have the dynamics of a regular Jake LaMotta fight. And uh, it was, he threw it. And the main thing there in the Fox fight is the, uh, is the element of um, uh, having it recorded for posterity with uh, still photos. Uh, the shame of it. That's when we started really to start playing around with the, uh, the flashbulb sounds as he walks away from Fox. There's a, uh, a series of uh, flashbulbs that go off that are very much like uh, gun sh They are rifle shots. What the fuck's the matter with you? Oh, oh. What do you think you're doing out there? Huh? A little slow, that's all. What are you doing out there? Take it easy, take it easy. It'll be all right. It's a little slow. I'll make it up. What do you want? Come on, pick it up a little, Jake. I'm sorry. Come on, Jake. I got some money on you. Hey, Jake! Get him back, you baby! Come on! Come on! Fuck him, fuck him! 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 They're a great theme in this film. Marty spent a great deal of time and a great number of flashbulbs on these shots. The producer was rather upset by how many flashbulbs were consumed during the many, many shots that Marty took to get exactly what he wanted. 
again, we weren't really interested in the mechanics and uh, of of the fight world and who was running what and uh, how many uh, who had to do what, which gangsters and who controlled what area, but more about the character and his sense of self-destruction. In fact, this scene in afterwards, I found it in a, a newspaper clipping from Jake's scrapbook, and it was a, a columnist writing about the fight afterwards because everybody felt it was a fixed fight. And uh, the columnist went back to his dressing room, and this is the scene he described. And literally the line, don't fight anymore, from uh, his trainer, actually it was from his father at the time, and pushing the, the reporters out, uh, the other reporters out. And he said um, he really felt that it was a genuine emotion that he saw backstage. And uh, he said he could not have thrown the fight because either that he was a great actor, but uh, maybe he was crying for other reasons. Some balls. Some balls. Like, take the dive. One more than one. Huh? You want me to go down, too? I ain't going down. You're down for nobody. Why don't you do me a favor, huh? Do something for me. Just put your hands up. I want to show you something. Put your hands up. Like a bum, like a mamaluke. A what? Like the mamaluke of the year. Tommy ain't gonna forget us. He's gonna get you a shot as long as he don't die. As long as who don't die? Tommy. What are you talking about? I says, in other words, Tommy ain't gonna forget you. You're gonna get you a shot if he don't die, though. You gotta make yeah. sure the guy stays alive. You got alive. disease or something? No, I'm just saying, you know, I'm like, good like. Well, what, what's wrong with him? Is something wrong with him? Ain't nothing wrong with him. I mean, that's the only way you wouldn't get it is if he dies, he won't be able to. What do you want me to do? It's an outdoor arena. What do you want to do? Fight in the rain? It's a stadium. You waited this long, you could wait longer. Hey, Joey, you want to wait 24 hours? I don't want to wait no 24 I don't either, but we got it, so we'll wait. Hello. In terms of accuracy, this is quite right. They, he got down there for the fight, got to Chicago for the fight with Sudan, and, and the fight was rained out. So he had to wait, and the anxiety of waiting caused a lot of tension. And I believe something did occur that night. I don't know, you know the details of it, but uh, gave us, uh, you know, gave us a good situation uh, for drama. Yeah, I remember one of the things we really liked about the script was that Schrader was able to go into the, the story of Jake or whatever that is. Because again, as I say, you can't just put one person's life in a capsule, capsule form. You just can't uh, uh, digest form. It's it's it's. Uh, it might be just a listing of facts, but it doesn't tell anything about the people. Um, he was able to go into it and uh, begin it in the middle, in a way, with the Reeves fight. And it kind of gave us a sense of freedom that we're able to pull scenes and verge on being episodic, but at the same time, use scenes that built up emotions and uh, the emotions then dictating the actions of the characters. We found trying to tell the story from the beginning as a, as a young man, as a, uh, what he had to do to survive, um, um, it just smacked of um, kind of an old-fashioned way of making movies uh, and writing stories, which, uh, which made the audience feel, let's say, feel um, 
at ease because, in a sense, everything about the characters in the film was explained so that you would feel that, well, okay, um, he came from a bad neighborhood, that's, and he became a thief and, uh, in order to survive. Now we understand that and that sort of thing. And it makes everybody feel good in a way and go home and, and think that there's... It kind of makes them stop thinking about it, I think. And the idea was we wanted to make him more powerful and uh, do him as a human being, uh, accept him as he is, or not accept him, um, and not rely on antiquated ideas of uh, motivation, because nothing's that simple. How are you feeling? Feeling all right, Tommy. Thank you. Are you feeling good? I feel as good as I'm gonna feel. I gotta get in there and fight, then I'm gonna go to feel. Now we just can buy to wish you luck and all right. Thanks. You need anything? No. You sure? Nothing? No, no, thank you, Tom. All right. All right Take thanks. care. Good luck. God bless you. All right, Tom. Thank you. You'll be all right. Yeah, I'll be all right. Uh, say hello, everybody. Thank you. Goodbye. Oh, Tommy, wait. Oh, we really appreciate your coming. Yeah. Really nice of you, you know? Yeah. I appreciate it. Come on, Joey, anytime, anytime. A time like this is very important. Oh, anytime. That's what's like a lot. We're picking out areas that jo uh, that uh, Jake is looking at, uh, the ring on, on Joey's hand and, uh, and his fingers, his arm around Tommy, um, basically all from Jake's point of view, the whole picture, from uh, very much like Taxi Driver in that sense where it's mainly from Travis's point of view, um, where the paranoia, pretty much dealing with similar, similar ideas, paranoia, um, he kind of... You literally, and that's one of the, again one of the reasons why we use slow motion when he looks. You see it the way he sees it. So the implication in the shot, there's an implication of familiarity between Vicky and some other men. You're seeing it that way, and it's shot that way because he sees it. But however, if it was Joe's point of view, there would be no implication of familiarity, so to speak. What's wrong? Oh, what? You know what I'm talking about. What's that all about? and he starts to build up a case against his brother's own paranoia building up. Now, of course, we never make a judgment. I mean, maybe uh, from the way he sees it, uh, it's shot that way, uh, you know, it could be true. We never say for sure. It's just his perception. This was the first shot that I saw on when I came to work on the film. And it was a very, very complicated Steadicam shot, starting in the basement and going all the way up with Jake into the ring where there were 3,000 extras. All the big crowd scenes were shot first in Hollywood, and uh, Marty had already told me that there were notes on the script notes I received in the morning, the first day I went to work, that he had a particular favorite in this, of these Steadicam shots. That was the one where everything worked out just perfectly. And when I put up the film to look at it on the editing machine, I saw that the registration pin had gone in the camera, and his favorite take was completely ruined. And so I had the unhappy task of going to the set and telling him that he had lost his favorite shot. Fortunately, we had uh, a good backup take, which is this one. 
but you can see how difficult it is to make sure that everything works properly. There's no cut in this entire sequence up to a certain point. And uh, all the extras and the uh, flash bulbs and the actors uh, acting all have to work out perfectly so that you can use it all as one piece. At the end of the shot, make it rise like that, uh, the steady cam operator sat on a crane and the crane picked him up and went high in the air. I mean, this one particular fight scene, I had uh, designed first to work all the steady cam. When we tried using it, though, um, I found that um, uh, I couldn't be precise enough with it, and so I stopped shooting it. And what I had realized, it certainly wasn't the fault of the steady cam itself, but what I had realized was that I, it was the one fight I didn't do my homework on, and so we had to postpone the thing and, and shoot other scenes uh, for that reason, and also for the reason that uh, the guy playing Serdan uh, was allergic to something that was put on the ropes and uh, scarred his back up, and he couldn't fight. He couldn't work for the day. And so I designed the rest of the sequence. Um, uh, it was delayed a week or two, and we went back to shoot it, and I shot it mainly with handheld. The fight scenes are handheld. And the handheld gave me the tension and the energy that I wanted in the frame. After a while, we had so many sound effects that uh, Frank, after a while, told, we always talked about pulling them out of the track and letting things go silent. Again, like a numbing effect, as if you're hitting the ear too many times. Don't shake it like that, I'm telling you. All right, now this sequence, <clears throat> this scene, something we worked on a great deal and uh, structured very carefully on paper. It's completely as written, a couple of improvs by Joe. But basically, now that he's gotten what he wanted, the title, he now begins to systematically take his whole life apart. And uh, I guess going back to what that painter had said, that... Uh, as if he didn't deserve it in the first place. Imagine having the first feature film you work on be with dailies in which Robert De Niro is the main character. His takes were remarkable in, in the sense that, I, I mean, very rarely did I feel there were any that were unusable. They were, they were often extremely different because Marty and he would love to experiment with different interpretations or different ways of doing a scene. For me, it was stunning to, to have this footage in my hands and see the discipline with which De Niro uh, carried out this role, not only physically, but the control he had over the part and 
the changes he went through in the film. You're supposed to be a champion. You eat like there's no tomorrow. That's it. Look, I forgot how long it took you to get to the title all the years of hard work. Huh? You forgot. You're going to defend it next month. Keep eating. This is a wonderful scene for me to uh, see the dailies of and be able to work on because it was a great example of how a truly great actor helps another actor's performance. This was a very, very difficult scene and shot under difficult conditions because they were in actually a house and there were planes flying overhead from Kennedy Airport and very, very hot and they couldn't run the air conditioning when they were shooting. So the physical conditions were very bad and the right level of tension between the two of them had to be just right. So the scene was shot over and over and over and over again and my assistants and I called this scene I Heard Some Things because whenever De Niro would see that Marty wanted more from both of the actors, he would begin again with, I heard some things, Joey. So we heard that line over and over and over again. But the wonderful way in which he worked as hard for Joe Pesci's performance as he did for his own was wonderful for me to see and, and taught me a great deal about acting. I heard some things. You heard about me and Salvi then? I heard things, Joey. Yeah, you heard that I cracked Salvi all around. What'd you things, hear? Joey. I heard things. What things you heard? heard it's a very simple things. scene. It's only a few a, a year later or whatever it is, a few months later, and uh, uh, a fight like that in public with his brother and with Salvi is going to get back to Jake. It was so natural to write it this way because he just kept probing, and the more his brother is reacting, and the more loudly he protests, he seems to protest too much. There's something about the way he's framed with the TV and like a rock. We get tighter in compositions here as it gets more intense. I was like watching Hitchcock's pictures because of that. The dialogue scenes are usually more interesting than anything else because of when he chooses to move the camera position. Usually in dialogue, like the, the dialogue scene in Psycho between Anthony Perkins and Janet Lee in the back room when he, when he has sandwiches with her. Uh, just notice the compositions. The first 20 lines of dialogue or so, the pretty wide frames, the intercut, very simply. And then at a certain point, they get tighter. And it's very interesting when he decided to move it a little tighter and when he decided to hold it wide. And a lot of that uh, came into play here. Tommy straightened it all out and it's all over. You give me that look, Joey. I got to accept your answer, you know. But I'm telling you now, if I hear anything, I swear on our mother, I'm going to kill somebody. I'm gonna kill somebody, Joey. Well, go ahead and kill everybody. You're a tough guy. Go kill people. Kill Vicky. Kill Salvi. Kill Tommy Como. Kill me while you're out. What do I care? You're killing yourself the way you eat. You're a fat fuck. Look at you. What do you mean? I don't understand. What do you mean kill you? Me. Kill me. Start here. Kill me first. Do me a fucking favor. Because you're driving me crazy. You're a killer. You're a big shot. Just kill. You're a killer. Excuse me. What do you mean by you, though? No matter what the brother did, he's wrong. Uh, he, he, he appears guilty. You don't even know what you meant by you. I mean nothing. Joey, that meant something. You mentioned Tommy, you mentioned Salvi, you mentioned you. You included you with them. You could have said anybody, but you said you and them. You really let this girl ruin your life. Look at you. She really did some job on you. You know how fucking nuts you are? Look what she did to you. You fucked my wife. What? Uh, you see Joe's reaction if he said, Do you fuck, did you fuck my wife? That's interesting. What we got, what Bob came up with, uh, Joe was strong, but he wasn't strong enough. So um, when we got we got to that point again to do another take, instead of saying, did you fuck my wife, um, Bob said, did you fuck your mother? And that's the reaction Joe, Joe came up with. 
So that's quite genuine. I always find that fascinating working with <laughs> oh, Bob and people like that who are so uh, inventive with that sort of I'm stuff. I'm not answering you. I'm not going to answer that. It's stupid. You're very smart, Joey. You give me all these answers, but you ain't give me the right answer. I'm you again. Did you or did you not? I'm not gonna answer it. That's a sick question. You're a sick fuck, and I'm not that sick that I'm gonna answer it. I'm not telling you anything. I'm gonna leave. If Lenore calls, tell her I went home. I'm not staying in this nut house with you. You're a sick bastard. I feel sorry for you. I really do. You know what you should do? Try a little more fucking, a little less eating. You won't have troubles upstairs in your bedroom, and you won't pick it out on me and everybody else. You understand, you fucking wacko? You're cracking up. Fucking screwball, you. I mean, the language of the picture is pretty strong, but we always found that with Jake, he didn't have to curse. He had such a strength about him, just in his look. And now he goes up to uh, proceed to uh, take apart everybody's life. And again, we figured out what movies we were playing around that time, that month, and uh, we thought we'd make a reference here to Vincent Minnelli, Father of the Bride, because that's the kind of stuff I used to love Minnelli films, too, as a child, because filled with such fantasy and such wonderful escape. And I always found it kind of touching that she went to see that that afternoon, was, or said she did anyway, uh, along Jake's thinking. <laughs> Why didn't you tell me, huh? Did you fuck my brother? We did this in one take. The rooms were really small in uh, Pelham Parkway. It didn't seem to call for uh, coverage of the normal sort. And this also, because the bathroom was so small, all we could do was hide in, in the tub. So uh, we also had, a, had some fun with this breaking down of the door, and that uh, it kind of deflates his... Uh, uh, because it breaks down so silly. I mean, the whole middle of the door comes off like that, and it almost deflates his, uh, uh, his violence and his anger. Uh, it makes it look kind of foolish. Uh, well, to us it was that way. I guess to other people, maybe not, but... <laughs> Um, very wide-angle lens. We were right on top of them at this point. Tommy, Salvi, your brother, oh, I sucked your brother's cock. What do you want me to say? One of the things I love about the women in Marty's films is I find his women always very uh, ready to stand up to the men who are giving them a hard time. I think uh, Kathy Moriarty was particularly wonderful in this film, the way she kept coming back at Jake, even when he was physically abusing her. And it's quite a theme in Marty's films. I think the women are often very tough and uh, able to take care of themselves in a way. I mean, it doesn't mean that their lives aren't being made miserable by themselves and whoever they are involved with, but uh, they're, they're by no mean wimps. These scenes, because they're choreographed, of course, very carefully not to hurt anybody, or the actors would always crack up laughing after, the, after each take which is very strange when you think of how horribly upsetting they are. 
used by Frank Warner of the animal sounds here. Part of his theme of using the animal sounds in the ring as well. Nothing we could do to scare those kids. We wanted to get the kids, uh, make the kids jump uh, for this one shot. But they just uh, watched. In reality, with, with Jake, we knew that he had some sort of argument with his brother. And this all built to this crisis in the film, this climax. Uh, what the, the actual, well, as in life, uh, who knows uh, all the details of that situation. And uh, you, you, it was something that was un translatable i think to, to screen but uh in any event we went with that where he uh, he does take apart everybody around him and loses everything now that he's gained everything he wanted from the book we had a, a long speech when she came in she's sort of reading the riot act to him and telling him listen it's over and i'm leaving and that's the end of it and uh we had it worked out and then after doing all those scenes we realized that the this dialogue there's no amount of words that would really be necessary this point the action is really what's more important she goes upstairs and starts packing again these rooms were so small we were lucky just to get the camera in the corner and pan back and forth with the actors keep it in one shot This is something uh, Lamar was very pleased about what he did. He sort of played possum here till the 13th round with Gortiel, and he uh, and then sort of came alive and won the won the fight. I think in one minute and 13 seconds. I think into the 13th round. And because he was not fighting here, we sort of shot for the first time from behind the ropes, through the ropes, um, the way other fight scenes are shot in movies. And yet, when he starts to turn, we do a shot go right through the ropes. Took us a whole day to get that camera crane through that, and the ropes were split and pulled apart. Here's where we started to pull away sound for the last punch, right here. That's actually a photograph from the Daily News. When he won, he kissed the uh, mat with his gloves. Come on. Just tell him he saw you. You miss him. You should probably have to talk to him sooner or later. 
Well, then a real good collaboration started with Bob on uh, Taxi Driver and went through uh, New York, New York. And by the time we got to Raging Bull, we sort of settled in with each other so that it became a very um, fruitful, we thought, collaboration. Uh, this and maybe King of Comedy uh, really had a very good uh, interlinking of uh, maybe doing the picture for different reasons and believing different ways about characters and stuff, but somehow on a certain level uh, connecting. Uh, so that uh, even the slightest improvisation or um, gesture we felt was inevitably going to be right. Because it's difficult when you get on a set and you're not sure if it's right or right, uh, right or not with uh, certain actors. I guess we had a certain kind of uh, trust. Get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here. Guy. Come on. I guess you're nice Salvi, this ain't funny anymore. Is it you? I know somebody's there. I can hear you breathing. You listening? Your mother sucks fucking big fucking elephant dicks. You got that? The scene Marty says came out of his own experience in the neighborhood he grew up in of sometimes people fooling around and calling their neighbors and saying obscene things and hanging up on them, the kind of thing you do when you're just before you're a teenager. And I never really seen any fights before, because uh, I wasn't a fight fan, I wasn't, I'm not a sports fan. But this particular image comes from directly from one of the fights that I saw. I was taken by a friend of mine to um, uh, Madison Square Garden to see some fights. We were all the way up in the top rows, and I saw a sponge uh, dipped in water and there was blood in the pail, and then squeezed that over the guy's back. The religious connotations of that for Marty were very strong. When the handler puts Vaseline on Bob's face, it's almost as if he's, it's a priest giving him a, a, a final anointing before death. The relationship of Sugar Ray Robinson and Jake LaMotta, of course, was quite famous. They were really the most powerful rivals for each other. That great action by Lamotta, he couldn't score the big one. This is a, a rep replication of the real footage of the way the Sugar Ray fight actually appeared on television. And the voice that we're using there of the announcer is actually the uh, actual announcer during the fight, the real fight. This is pretty much as as it, as it occurred. He had a flurry in the 12th round, Jake. By the time the 13th round came up, it was just a, like a religious uh, sacrifice of some sort, punishing himself. Now, this whole sequence is, was worked out almost like a horror sequence in a way where I, I literally got shot-by-shot shot breakdown of uh, the shower scene in Psycho uh, that was done by Hitchcock and I think helped design by Saul Bass and relayed out my original storyboards for this one sequence shot-by-shot um, shot with the shower sequence in Psycho and shot it in that order. They, what we wound up doing, of course, was 
use the um, Hitchcock uh, Saul Bass diagram in a way uh, to help me get through the sequence in the shooting and then enable us to make our own cut of it. The uh, shots of the camera right on the edge of the glove, as if, as if the glove is flying right, right into his face, that was uh, suggested by Sam Fuller, who said, put the, put the lens in his fist. And uh, we were able to put that in there. And these shots of Vicky re reacting were taken from the Life magazine of his wife actually reacting that time during the fight. And literally the same angle and uh, same composition. De Niro went through real agonies during the shooting of this amazing sequence because he had to be hit in the head with a glove that didn't have a hand in it to make the impact in those very tight shots of blood spurting and sweat spurting. And um, Marty used to, used to say to Marty, what's the next shot? And Marty would say, well, now you're going to get hit in the head. And he would say, well, now what's the next shot after that was over? And Marty would say, well, now you're going to get hit in the head again, except this time it's going to be your left temple. And this went on for days and days and days. Bob was so patient about it. And there you see it. A champion gone down to defeat. And so now we wait for the announcement from Eddie Plick, the ring announcer. And this is the other thing I noticed from the second time I went to see fights at Madison Square Garden. Uh, there were like five fights. And in between one of the bouts, uh, the announcer came out and he was announcing what the next bout was going to be. And I just saw, I was, I was down the fourth row that time. And uh, I was with Pete Savage and Jake LaMotta taking us, Bob and I. And what I just noticed as the guy was announcing, it was a blood dripping off the rope from the previous fight. And it just stuck in my mind and uh, came up with this shot. And we shot some scenes in California. Uh, this was shot in San Pedro, and we just got some portable palm trees to put them in the background to get the impression of Miami. And I particularly like flying around too much, so uh, they don't have to. The picture's not about the scenery here. I'm tired of worrying about weight all the time. That's all I used to think about was weight, weight, weight. After a while, you know, you realize other things in life. It was one of the things that he wanted to do. Originally, when he gave me the book back in 74, he had this idea. The guy had this trouble with weight his entire life, and uh, he uh, would gain weight and lose weight, etc. And it would really be interesting to do it um, and have the physical transformation be real rather than a matter of makeup. The weight gain for Bob was a big decision, and my husband, Michael Powell, was consulted by Marty and De Niro about how Roger Livesey and Colonel Blimp, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, a film my husband made in England during the war, had gained the weight that he appears to have on him when he's uh, an older man in the film. And my husband explained that it wasn't a matter of uh, gaining the weight, actually. They used a double, and Livesey did it with acting by stuffing things in his mouth, etc., shaving his head. But De Niro felt very strongly he wanted to gain the weight, and he did, and we had to stop the shooting for several months for the various stages at which he was gaining weight. I don't usually go on to the set very much because I feel part of my job is to give Marty some perspective. When I go on the set, 
a great deal, I find that uh, I can be seduced by having watched a scene being filmed. I think my job is to look at the film very coldly each morning, and if I see something that doesn't seem to be working the way I think Marty probably wanted it to be, or if I don't understand something, uh, then it's my job to tell him that. So I, I like to keep some distance um, from the films if I can uh, during their shooting. And sometimes if the film is based upon a book, I don't like to read the book because I, I want to try and under or help him understand if something is understandable to an audience or, or is working or not. The most important time for me is going to dailies with Marty each night after he's finished shooting. On this particular film, De Niro was also attending the dailies screening, so I would hear from both of them what they felt about the shots they were seeing. It's a very important time for me because Marty uh, gives me his first visceral reaction to what he's seeing on the screen and uh, gives me very, very specific notes about performance, uh, camera movements that he likes or does not like, and very strong indications of which takes he would like to be assembled into the very loose assembly that I then put together until such time as he comes into the editing room and begins to work very intensely with me. And we then edit the film entirely together. We spend long hours in the editing room and they're always very emotional. I learn a great deal from Marty about acting during this time because he shapes performances in the editing room. He shoots a great number of takes sometimes. He covers a wide range of an actor's performance and then he hones down and refines that performance in the editing. Some directors don't uh, even like to go into the editing room. My husband, Michael Powell, disapproved of it vehemently. Uh, but he was working with a different kind of actor in a different time. Those actors who were working in the on the stage in London uh, and at night and shooting films during the day were from a different style of acting, highly disciplined and probably not very experimental. And Directors at that time were only allowed maybe one or two prints. They were never allowed to shoot 13 takes or 15 takes, as happened at the uh, for the last scene in, in Raging Bull. Uh, so the director had to make decisions about acting on the set. Marty has the luxury of, of not having to do that. And we all came out of a time when, in a way, maybe we were coddled by a rather affluent time in filmmaking. Part of this also comes from our documentary experience. I think there, a more experimental approach towards filmmaking was uh, born in, in Marty, and his documentary experience shows up in his films a lot, I think. He loves accidental things that happen on the set and is never afraid to use them. I chose to shoot the picture in black and white. And the uh, main reason was because at that time the uh, color film stock that was being used for prints especially would fade from fade to pink or red between uh, anywhere from six to 12 years. And after coming off New York, New York and realizing that New York, New York was so designed in advance and uh, so well laid out, we thought in terms of uh, art direction and uh, costumes and it was really a painted film in a way. And afterwards, I began to realize that the, that the prints that people will be seeing maybe as, as, sh as short a time as six or seven years later 
would fade. Another thing, Michael Powell was uh, uh, visiting us a great deal at the time in New York in 77 and 78. And we were doing, uh, 78 especially, we were doing research on a raging bull and Bob would do some work in a gym. And then there was some, at that time there was no videotape or it was, videotape was just beginning. And uh, they took some eight millimeter home movies of uh, uh, sparring in the ring. Uh, Bob sparring with uh, one of the uh, stuntmen. And we projected them on the wall in my apartment on 57th Street. And uh, Michael Powell was there, was sitting on the floor. And uh, they're eight millimeter color films. And at that time, and they still do, I believe, use bright red gloves. And Michael, um, after after screening it, we were just talking about the body moves and things like that. We weren't really getting into uh, the look of the picture. But Michael said, there's one thing one thing wrong. We said, what's that? He said, the gloves, they're red. It was too definitive, a, too definitive a color, and and uh, it began the thinking in my mind about the possibility of uh, draining out the color, maybe in the film. Not black and white yet. I wasn't thinking of black and white yet. And we had realized too that uh, uh, the gloves of the '40s were oxblood, uh, kind of a brown. So maybe that would help. And then later on, it was clinched um, with an old friend of ours, Gene Kirkwood, coming by in my office and saying, "Remember, sweet smell of success. Remember that black and white, sweet smell of success." And the other main reason for shooting black and white was a certain period look or impression that it gives. And uh, at the same time, there were about four other boxing films that were coming out. The main event, Matilda, the, the boxing kangaroo, I think Rocky two or three, and one other boxing film, they were all in tech, oh, the champ. I think they were all in color. And uh, I felt that this would be special because it would be black and white and not to be confused with the other pictures. And of course, the best color of boxing I had seen, it was so vivid in my mind, was the one color the beautiful three strip technicolor sequence in uh, John Ford's The Quiet Man it was very vivid. In terms of the black and white in the film, we, we tried to, I really wanted to look like um, a tabloid, like Daily News, or at the time they used to be the Daily Mirror, too. And uh, very much like Ouija photographs, we studied those. And even the texture of the, of the clothes, we took many uh, tests. Uh, we tested the clothes in, in uh, black and white. And a lot of stuff was rejected because it didn't photograph the way we, we thought it would. The black and white in the film is so beautiful. Marty would actually like to make more films in black and white, but it's quite difficult to convince the studios of that these days. The timer for the film had to be brought out of retirement at Technicolor in Hollywood and proved to be a wonderful character named Jim Henry, who was delighted to be working on the film and did a just beautiful job of timing it. Black and white is a medium we would all like to work in more. I think I think we miss it very, very much. As I say, this stuff of Bob in this condition, having gained his 60 pounds, was shot in about 10 days. We had planned a little more, like three weeks, but the uh, the weight was such a burden that uh, we, we shot quicker than we uh, had anticipated to, so that he could start losing it again, which was a very hard thing to do. He also, he also pointed out to me it was very hard to gain it and that you really had to work at eating three meals a day. 
at the beginning, like for the first week and a half, it's kind of fun. And then for the next two months, it's uh, rather difficult. We actually took uh, several months off in order for De Niro to gain weight. And during that time, Marty and I worked editing together the all the footage of Bob when he was young uh, so that he could see it all uh, because he wanted to see how it was working before he did himself older. She's 14. She's 14. You gonna tell me that, that girl looks fourteen? She's fourteen. I'm gonna ask you man to man. What am I gonna say? Uh, come on, we gotta go. We gotta go downtown. That's right. Mm -hmm. For what? Because of this girl. Vic. John. Vic, you open the door. I'm out on bail. I just gotta pick up one thing and I'll leave. I promise. Kids are sleeping. I won't bother them. Let me just get something. All right. What? Don't make no noise. I always like the sound effect as he walks across the room. So the whole house shook. Yeah, but they're not the case against you. No, you shouldn't be a what? You ever see a 14 year old testifying court? We saw the papers, the mod on a vice rap. What do you do to the belt? What difference? Well, can't you get the money from your friends? Yeah, we're friends. Jay, you're gonna wake my kids up, Jay. You're gonna wake the kids! Uh, the dishes breaking at the end of this was an imp uh, we hadn't planned on. And they sort of improvised the last few lines of dialogue. So that's always what we liked about Kathy because she was always, uh, it didn't matter. We saw that in the, sort of the audition she did a couple of, uh, she did a screen test for us actually. It was one of the few times we have a shot screen test. And she had that ability to, uh, if he yelled at her that way or came out against her that way in, in a scene, she had the ability to stand back up to him and um, deal with it in a, I don't know, a very truthful uh, Truthful way, uh, she just wouldn't uh, take anything. That was kind of nice. I know you're lying. Go around the corner, bitch. I get twice for you off. I can't raise the ten thousand. I tried. I tried. I tried a lot of places. Hey, what am I gonna do? If that's what they're gonna do. They're gonna do. What can I do? But fuck them. I'm do what they're gonna do. And these were actual prison guards that we got. We rehearsed it nicely, uh, half speed, you know, not the full energy level. And then when he did the scene, after they got him in, in the, the cell, they, they were quite shaken by it because they hadn't realized it was going to be such a realistic struggle.
we were always very, very uh, taken by the scene in the jail. And Bob and I always talked to Jake about it, and that's uh, Jake demonstrated how he hit his head against the wall and how he punched the wall. And uh, there was something about the move that we liked a great deal. I remember uh, that we, of course, had padded the, the cell with a kind of foam, but uh, it didn't matter after about two or three takes of this. Uh, really do it maybe once or twice without beginning to get a uh, ringing sensation in his ears, you know. It, it, so it was a little difficult to do the scene. We shot with two cameras here, and I recall that uh, when he was in a certain position at the wall, it was sort of a signal for me to start, so we didn't have the usual going in with slates uh, and slamming in front of people's heads and faces and saying, okay, action, you know, and then now do your stuff. Uh, we sort of went by the mood of it, and I would give a very little small signal with my finger, and one camera would go on, the other would go on, and um, one was tighter and one was a little wider, and it was sort of a move in, I remember, and one camera had a move in. And we only did a few takes. <laughs> This is one of those films where the crew and a lot of the people working on it have no idea how the film is going to come together. Marty does not put into his scripts a great deal of the things he's going to do to make the film, um, particularly in style, his own. And the crew on this one, I found, uh, were very baffled by why the film was being made at all. They, they felt that the main character was uh, repellent. They could see no redeeming characteristics in him. And it, when they finally saw the film put together, they were stunned at the power that it had. This is because Marty thinks so deeply as an editor when he is uh, planning how to shoot the film. And since the script usually represents mainly the dialogue, you could not know from reading it uh, how his style is going to appear. I think Marty and I knew that it was uh, very original as we were working on it. And certainly the film did not receive much acclaim at the time when it came out. It took quite a long time before it was recognized really by the critics, I think. And uh, I think even to this day, a lot of the people who worked on the film don't really quite understand why people think <laughs> what they think of it now. <laughs> it's uh, but Marty's style, you see, is is uh, so much part of the editing. So there is no way you could know it, even if you saw all the dailies. You you could never know what's going to happen when certain shots collide with other shots. Uh, it's, it's a very particular thing about him as a director, I think. A great deal of what he does occurs first in his mind and, and then only blossoms when it's in the editing room. Uh, that's why, as I've said many times before, I, I don't really feel that the Oscar I won for this film was mine. It was certainly Marty's uh, because I would never have won the Oscar if it hadn't been for the fight sequences in the film. And those sequences are as brilliant as they are because of what Marty did, not because of what I did. I helped him put it together. But he sh planned so carefully each shot and how each shot would cut to the other shot. And in the smaller fights, uh, for example, the Dotiel fight, basically the fight is as planned by Marty. In sequences, the long montage in the final Figure fight, we did make changes from the way he had originally storyboarded the fight, but basically 
a great deal of it was as he originally intended it. To get the proper rhythm and everything, of course, you do have to uh, manipulate the footage a bit in a long montage sequence like that. But if you study the beauty of some of the uh, camera movements, the extraordinary original nature of them, the use of, of uh, rheostats to slow down and to speed up, the amazing way the camera flies around, um, that's all directing. That is not editing. And it's... Uh, a cameraman beautifully carrying out a great thought by a director. One of the reasons I like working for Marty is that uh, he's constantly changing from film to film. He's constantly pushing the boundaries of what is acceptable. He's constantly experimenting. This is what makes it so exciting to work for him. I learn a tremendous amount from him, and I, and I love going along on the ride as he grows and develops and is never satisfied with repeating himself or bringing to fruition a, a, a script uh, without in some way making it new for himself and hopefully for the audience. I mean, the thing I always wanted to get out here was the idea of uh, a guy who systematically took apart his whole life and then at a certain point when he reached the lowest he uh, pulls himself together to the point of uh, reaching some sort of a peace with himself and with the uh, people around him so that by the end uh, this sequence he could sit and look at himself in the mirror and feel that he's going to take it easy on himself and people around him at this point and that's all that's all we wanted to do We're going for the price on Wilson Remember that? This ain't your night, my night. Now, the use of On the Waterfront, that's exactly what uh, LaMotta did at the Barbizon. And I remember showing the first script that we had to Michael Powell. It ended with uh, Shakespeare, because he did do Shakespeare. And I think something from Richard III. And Michael said, oh, you can't do that. And I said, but it actually happened. He said, well, it doesn't mean it, it will work in the context within the context of what you have here, uh, because the character and you and Bob are so American, and it has to be something, uh, it should be something American. And we felt we'd tackle on the waterfront, and we knew with all the difficulties that would that would bring to us, which is that the uh, it, it might bring comparisons to the actual scene, uh, Bob doing Jake doing Brando, you know, and uh, it, it has different layers and different levels that might get in the way. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. It was you, Charlie. It was you, Charlie. How you doing, Jake? Everything all right? Yeah. Ready? You got about five minutes. Okay. That's me back there telling him uh, you got about five minutes. That's my little walk-on. That comes from a guy named Lenny Gaines who was in uh, New York, New York. At one point, tells Jimmy Doyle, 
was causing a lot of trouble in a restaurant, tells him, listen, Jimmy, we're only here for 20 minutes, so why don't we just relax and enjoy ourselves, meaning we're only in life on this earth for like 20 minutes. So uh, when he says, how long do we have? I said, we've got about five left. And uh, it's that kind of resignation that we wanted. But we took about 19 takes of this, um, this reciting of a Beyond the Waterfront speech. We did it at different levels. We did it the way Jake did it. We did it uh, a whole series of ways. But the one that I really wanted to use was this business of it being very, very cold and very simple. And uh, that's what we finally wound up choosing. As simple as possible so that nothing would be read into it. By the editing of the film, my old professor, Haig Mnugin, had died. And uh, I really wanted him to see this picture because he was the one who was uh, very instrumental in uh, getting me to be able to have the... Uh, ability to put things on film, to express myself on film. And I, I, I mean, there were a lot of people I, I was influenced by, I guess, of Eddie's Powell, but uh, he guided me. And he died right before the film, a few months before the film came out. And um, the idea was, too, that uh, I knew that Jake was such a difficult character to take. And uh, I knew that we'd be getting a lot of criticism as to why make a film about this kind of guy and uh, people judging him. And I just thought the Bible quote was really the right thing to do in terms of... Uh, not making judgments on people. I think the uh, the quote's evident in what it is. It's the idea of, you know, I, I don't know anything. All I know is that uh, I was able to see through working out this man's problems on, on film, or this character's problems, I should say, through the vehicle of the real person, Jake LaMotta, gave us the ability to um, see other things about life, that's all. And it sort of applies to Haig and applies to, to the character of Jake and in the film and the real Jake and kind of tied up everything pretty nicely, I thought. <laughs>